May the Lord find us faithful. James chapter 4, James chapter 4, we read from verses 13 through 17 just a few moments ago. And we come down now to the end of this chapter. And in the context, as we looked at recently, there is continuing to be this theme of submission and of humility and trusting the Lord and depending upon the Lord instead of upon ourselves. We had looked at in verses 7 through 10, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Verse number 8, draw nigh to God. And then the aspects of humility that we looked at in cleansing our hands and purifying our hearts and being afflicted and mourning over our sinfulness. And letting our laughter be turned to mourning and our joy to heaviness, again, over our sinfulness, our need to depend upon the Lord, to draw nigh to Him, to depend upon Him for victory over sin, for resisting the devil, submitting ourselves to the Lord and humbling ourselves in the sight of the Lord and letting Him do the lifting up. And then last week we spent the morning message, looking at verses 11 and 12, about speaking not evil one of another, slandering, lifting ourselves up in pride, in condemning hypocritical judgment of others, literally slandering, railing upon them, in putting ourselves in God's place and being the judge of even God's law, lifting ourselves up in our thoughts and our ideas and our standards at or above the law of God and taking the place of God who is the one lawgiver in verse number 12. So really he's continuing this same theme, but he's going to take us on another place of, take us to another place of application. And he begins with this phrase, go to now, a little bit of an unusual phrase for us in our modern English, but it's simply saying, come now. The idea is go to a place where you can listen, where you are not distracted, where you can give your full attention. That place is hard to find today, isn't it? We have to have something going all the time. We have the TV on, we have earbuds in, and we are constantly distracted. There's something constantly in an age of information with media all around, with the World Wide Web that we often seem to be so tangled in. It's hard to extricate ourselves from the distractions of the world in order to listen to what is really important. And I think that part of the strategy of the devil, of Satan, the prince of the power of the air, is to keep us distracted. Not necessarily by sin, though of course there are a multitude, there's a buffet, there's a smorgasbord of sins to distract us. That's obviously a major problem, a major issue. But there's just the vanity of vanities. There's just the so many ways and areas that we can be distracted, that we can be tuned out instead of tuned in. We've had a rule around our house. If you have an earbud in, it's one. One earbud. If you're going to listen to something, because you've got to be able to hear us. There are multitudes of places that we go. Restaurants, 
any place out in the public, it seems, and I understand there are places where, you know, two earbuds, put those in and listen, and where it, it, it's nice to be able to do that, uh, depending on your work or whatever. I, I will be mowing the yard, and I usually will put earbuds in and listen to music or sermons or podcasts or something. There's places for that, obviously. But have we been in public places where we can't even get the attention of someone because they have something plugged into their ears and they're not even listening? Now you can get the nice, expensive headphones that are noise-canceling so you can drown everything out, right? And it becomes an isolated world sometimes, and we can go on and on with all the evidences of this, but it's something that we struggle with. Knowing the time and place, because we're so distracted. I remember in, in school and dealing with this all the time with the distractions of the schoolroom, the classroom, and maybe one individual who creates a lot of that distraction, or just various ways in which it's hard sometimes to get students to focus. I've talked about attention span and the fact that we're now below the rate of a goldfish for our attention spans, we're clocking in, I think it's around eight seconds in goldfish, they have an attention span of nine or something like that. Distractions. James, by the power of the Holy Spirit, inspiration of God, says go to now. Listen up. Go to a place where you can listen. This is an extremely important area that I'm going to talk about here. And these people are distracted. Twelve tribes scattered abroad. They have suffered some persecution, no doubt. They've suffered some ethnic discrimination, no doubt. There's been issues that James is dealing with, and he's sensed, for whatever reason, we're not sure exactly what was going on among these twelve tribes, but we know that the Jewish people are a very industrious people. Strong family ethic, strong work ethic, and... There seems to be something now about their busyness. They're getting settled into their place of wherever they have gone in this scattering, and they're getting busy with life. Family, business, trade, whatever it is. And there's distractions. And he says, come, or go, I should say, go to a place. Go to now. Listen. Go to a place no distraction to listen to this important topic, this important message. So we see, first of all, in verse 13, the review, the review of their plans. There are plans that they have made and are making. There's a busyness to their life, and he wants them to listen. And he reviews their plans. Go to now, ye that say, today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. So is verse 13 saying that we should not be working and preparing, that we should not have things to do in life? Of course not. Of course there's preparation. Of course there's scheduling. Of course there are calendars and Daytimers, and now it's not so much daytimers, there's not a lot of people who use a written calendar. Some people still do. A lot of people depend on a digital calendar, a Google calendar or whatever. Uh, there used to be, uh, what was it, the, um, the oh, I can't remember, the Blackberry. The Blackberry, I remember how popular that was at one time, and, and I guess they still use them somewhere. 
but there's all these different day timers. Most of them are digital now. We have schedules. We have calendars. We put things in the bulletin. There is an aspect to life that requires planning. Proverbs 24 and verse 27, prepare thy work without and make it fit for thyself in the field and afterwards build thine house. We spent time on Tuesday afternoon going through the budget, planning. We use a budget to save, to plan, not to spend, but to save, to be good stewards of the resources. We have a family budget or a personal budget. We have a, a calendar. We have a very busy house. We have, when the kids are home from college, there are six of us working at least part-time. And we have, thankfully, enough vehicles that we can get to the different places, but we have a calendar in the schoolroom where we write down people's schedules. I have to communicate. My, my schedule can change from one hour to the next, depending on a text or a phone call or whatever. And so I'm constantly communicating. And one of the things I love about texting is being able to send a quick note. Uh, and even though I'm in the middle of a meeting or something or whatever. Um, but that communication for scheduling, so important. We have busy lives. He's not saying that all planning, all preparing, all scheduling is wrong. We just read from Proverbs 24 and verse 27, the wisdom of preparing. Well, Luke 14 and verse 28, For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first, and counteth the cost, whether ye have sufficient to finish it? So there are times where we are financially arranging for particular purchases. We plan, we save, we prepare, we get to the place where it's something that can be afforded or affordable. We count the cost. Proverbs 6 and verse 6, verses 6 through 8, really, we're told in Proverbs 6 to go to the ant, thou sluggard, consider her ways, and be wise, which having no guide, overseer, or ruler, provideth her meat in the summer, and gathereth her food in the harvest. One of the ways in which we can learn from God's creation is from the ant who plans and prepares ahead of time, saves and plans for a rainy day for the winter or whatever the case may be. So in the context, it's not that James is saying don't plan, don't schedule, don't prepare, don't look ahead and plan accordingly. No, we're to count the cost. We're to prepare thy work without. We're to consider the ant. Go to the ant. Consider her ways and be wise. But it seems that there were church people, people in this Jewish community or these Jewish communities, the 12 tribes scattered abroad, and now making application to us today, it seems that there were a lot of plans being made, a lot of schedules, a lot of future preparations, a lot of decisions being made without really seriously considering the will of God, the commands, the principles, and the promises of God's word. As a matter of fact, down in verse 14, he says, I'm sorry, in, in verse 16, excuse me, but now ye rejoice in your boasting, all such rejoicing is evil. This is an overconfidence. Big decisions being made, even maybe little decisions. 
going through life busy and active and having a lot of things going on, but not really seriously taking time to pray about, to consider, to trust, to depend, and to look and see what would the Lord have me to do? What, what principles can apply here? Am I keeping God first? Is there nothing coming between me and the Lord? It seems that biblical priorities were being pushed down the list. There appeared to be an overconfidence in their own plans, their own abilities, and their own ideas. To the point that there was a boasting that James, by the inspiration of God, is calling a rejoicing that was evil. Strong word. They were acknowledging, excuse me, they were not acknowledging God in all their ways. They weren't knowing God in their circumstances, knowing God in the close personal relationship that they should have with him so that they were making sure that their desires were of the Lord, that what they were seeking was first the kingdom of God and Christ being preeminent and setting their affections on things above. It seemed that those kinds of priorities had been shuffled down the list and it was about going here, he says in verse number 13, to the city and continuing there for a year and buying and selling and getting gain. And the, the point isn't that there was wrong in their profit, that there was wrong in making a living. That wasn't the criticism. That wasn't the condemnation. That wasn't what James was addressing. It's not that we can't make money and earn a profit and provide for our families. But an overconfidence in our ability and overconfidence in our treasures and our riches and the things that we can buy and overconfidence in our own plans, our own abilities, our own ideas, this kind of boasting, this kind of overconfidence, this kind of pride is what James is condemning, what James is dealing with. They were not acknowledging God in all their ways. They were leaning on their own understanding. I've heard it said this way, practical atheism. Or maybe even the term moralism applied in this kind of situation. Where we claim to know God, we claim to be one of his children, we claim to know Christ as our Savior, but we kind of live our life without really considering God first. Without really considering God's will and God's word and God's ways. We're, we're just kind of going through life and yeah, we believe in God, we know God and we are a Christian, but we're practicing a practical kind of atheism. Moralism can even sometimes be used to describe this. Not necessarily some really bad or some really evil, not really some top ten kind of sins that are in, we're engaging in in our life, but we're just kind of going through, we're, we're just kind of getting by, and we're not doing too bad, but we're not doing really good, and it's okay. We're not really serious about the things of the Lord and seeking first the kingdom of God and we're boasting about our own plans. We're boasting about our own abilities, our own way. We're boasting about how we can get through life. And yeah, God's there. He's, he's a fire extinguisher. If I need him, I'll, I'll pull him out and pull the pin and take care of my, my crisis. Oh, he's that, he's that, that tape measure in the, the drawer when I need to kind of 
figure out some things. I'll pull them out and I'll get the tape measure out and I'll do some measurements and then put it back, put it back in the drawer, kind of go about and do my own thing. We, we treat God like that if we're not careful. He, he's, he, he's, I know we don't really do much with written dictionaries today. We ask Surrey, we ask Google, we go to all the internet search engines, websites. But I remember in, in school, I know I'm, I'm ancient now, but we had to go through the process in English class of getting a dictionary out. In elementary, we had to learn how a dictionary worked. In high school English, we had to get the dictionary out. We had to open it up, and we had to look up certain words, and then my English teacher, she loved etymologies. She, she was in love with verbs, for one thing. This is the same English teacher that would use Philippians 4.8, and I appreciated her love for English. Um, there were some great things I learned from her. But she was kind of OC about verbs, and then she would get the dictionary. She'd make us get the dictionaries out, and we would have to open them up, and we would have to go to the etymologies, and we'd have to learn where that word came from. So if it had a German root or a Latin root or whatever kind of root, she was just that way. You know, we're kind of like that with God sometimes. We, we, we get the dictionary out, we get God out when we feel like we need to reference something. And then we close the book back up and put it back on the shelf. I don't know, sometimes we, we treat God like Google or Surrey. He's just a search engine, search engine to get what I want out of life, to get what I think I need to reference, to kind of have there. So safety net is a fire extinguisher, a safety valve, but he, he's not my all in all. I'm just kind of busy with life. I got a lot going on, and I know God is my Savior, and he'll take care of me. I'm one of his children, but I'm not really close to the Lord, not really keeping a close personal fellowship with the Lord, walking with him, serving and obeying, and acknowledging him in all my ways. I'm boasting in my plans and my abilities. I am rejoicing in a way that's evil, James says. Not that busyness is bad, not that a work ethic is bad, but are we keeping God first? Are we really walking close with him? Are we really seeking his will and his way first? They had a determined goal. They had a departure time. They had a designated place. They had a time that they were going to stay. They had a goal for what they were going to gain. But God was not in their plans. God was not in the priorities. God was not in their ways. And then he continues. He not only does a review of their plans, but then he sends a revision of their plans. There's a review of their plans, and now he sends a revision of their plans. You ever submitted a paper or submitted a, a job order or submitted something for a review? It's got to go through a chain. It's got to go to a manager or to a higher up, and it's got to get all the different checks, and then it gets sent back, and it's got to be redone. Rough draft, again, English class. And I remember having a professor in seminary, and he would talk about when he sent our rough drafts back to us for review, he would say, sorry men, but I had to bleed all over your rough drafts. And we were like, oh no, I know what that means. His blood was his red pen <laughs> that he had to mark on our papers, and we had to go back, and we had to review and change things, and then resubmit it, right? 
There's a review, and now there is a revision. Look at verse 14. Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. He causes us to reconsider. We don't even know what the next day brings. Our life is but a vapor. It's only for a little time. It's a dash between two dates. It's like the breath that we probably saw this morning when we walked out watching a football game last night and the offensive line and the defensive line. It looked like a cloud of smoke sometimes watching that game in Kansas City last night because their breath was so obvious in the cold. It's like that vapor of our breath that we see for a short time then vanishes away like the exhaust coming out of our muffler in the back of our cars. appears for a little time then vanishes away. A new perspective in this revision. A new priority in this revision. Notice what he says in verse 15. For that ye ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. What's he bring them back to? If the Lord will. The providence and the sovereignty of God. Submission, humility to God's providence, to God's sovereignty, to God's will. So, in this revision, there has to be a new priority. A priority of God's will, a priority of God's providence, a priority of God's sovereignty. Can I even go so far as to say a priority of prayer? I know it's not specifically mentioned here, but in their trials of James 1, what does he say? He says to go to the Lord and to seek his wisdom. In verse 5, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. There was prayer needed in the time of trial, in tribulation and suffering. And that's when we tend to need God, right? When the bad things in life happen, when the trials and the tribulations come, there are even unsaved people who will stop in the middle of a TV broadcast to pray for a football player on the field who had a massive heart attack due to a rare type of hit in the middle of a football game. And even unsaved people are saying we need to pray. Tragedies like 9-11 where if you've ever watched any of those documentaries and they're crying out to God. People who have rejected him and won't even acknowledge him, they somehow, some way, we know it's through general grace and general revelation, they cry out to God in the midst of a great trial. It's like he's saying, you know how to cry out to God in your trials, but you don't seem to have any care for God in the regular aspects of life. The same things that God is blessing you with right now in your times of prosperity, in your times of ease. You forget about God, but you want to call on him, and we should in our trials, but we should be calling on him when things are going well. When life is a walk, we still wait on the Lord. When life is a running and a fainting, we wait on the Lord. We trust the Lord. Proverbs 27 and verse 1, it appears that this is where James is drawing this particular phrase from in verse 14. Proverbs 27 Verse 1, boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. What about the parable of the rich farmer in Luke chapter number 12? Luke chapter number 12, 
the parable of the rich farmer brings application to this same passage. Maybe James was even drawing from this as God gave him the revelation of God's word for James chapter 4, 13 through 17. But Luke 12 and verse 16, and he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, because I have no room where to bestow my fruits? The crop had been good. He had a lot. He was overflowing his barns, his silos. He had a lot, more than he could handle. Had he even thought about the Lord yet? Had he even praised God? Had he even thanked the Lord for the abundance? Verse 18, and he said, this will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Isn't that the attitude of many people in the world today? Eat, drink, and be merry. Get what you can get while you have the chance to get it. It's a dog-eat-dog world. When I got a lot, I'm going to just build myself more barns. Because I did it. I made this happen. But God said unto him, verse 20 of Luke 12, Thou fool. Thou fool. This night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? I've done many funerals in my life, in my ministry, the ministry that God has given me. I've done many funerals, and I have not seen a rider truck or a U-Haul behind a hearse. It doesn't go with us, does it? Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. I believe it's in another passage, a parallel passage, where it said, your life consisteth not in the things which you have. The things that God has provided, that doesn't make up your life. Your life consisteth not in the things which you have obtained, which you have. So though prayer is not specifically used in this particular passage, in this phrase, in this context, there seems to be a, at least an inference that we can draw from this passage that we need to be a praying people. That we don't need to be like the rich farmer or like these who are boasting in an evil way that they have accomplished all this, they have earned all this, they have done all this. Whereas prayer would put us on our knees in humility and praise to God and thanksgiving. As we looked at in the Sunday school hour in Philippians 4, Our requests are made known unto the Lord in our times of anxiety. Don't worry about anything. Be anxious for nothing. But everything through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let our requests be made known unto God. And then the peace of God will rule in our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. We can look even in the passage in James 4, in verses 7 through 10 that we looked at earlier. There's submitting to the Lord. There's the drawing nigh to God. There's the cleansing of our hands, the purifying of our hearts. There's the affliction, the mourning, the heaviness, the humbling of ourselves before the Lord. In the review, we see a self-dependence. We see an overconfidence. We see a boasting in our abilities and our ideas and our plans. In the revision, there is a new priority. 
the priority of providence, of sovereignty of God, of God's will, of setting our affections on things above and seeking first the kingdom of God and a priority of prayer, which is an attitude of dependence upon the Lord. As a matter of fact, in the Lord's prayer, the disciples' prayer, we read, we know, thy will be done. Our Father, which art in heaven, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Someone said, work, work as if everything depends upon you, but pray because everything ultimately depends upon the Lord. We pray as a matter of dependence, as a matter of having our priorities right, as a matter of submission, as a matter of humility. If the Lord wills, in the review and in the revision, we see that our priority must be the Lord, depending upon Him. They had particular plans. They had a particular city. They had a determined time. They had a designated place. They had a certain goal in mind for their prophets. They had certain things that they wanted to accomplish that they felt like they had the ability to accomplish in their wisdom, in their schedule, in their plans, by their abilities. They were going to go for a year. They were going to buy and sell. They were going to get gain. And they were boasting in their abilities and their self-confidence. And God brings a revision. It brings them back to the right priorities. So that brings us thirdly today to the requirements. The requirements. We've seen this review and the revision. In a sense, God gives back the paper, gives back the rough draft, and he's marked on it. You need to fix this, you need to change this, you need to do this, you need to say this better. Ultimately, he's saying you need to depend upon me. You need to seek God's will. And then he puts down some requirements some requirements for their plans. Well, first of all, we look again at verse 14. Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? Why consider the will of God? Why consider the will of God? The world goes about its business, builds its buildings, and develops its technology. I mean, we have AI now, right? We don't even have to think anymore. We have artificial intelligence. On and on it goes, right? Man has all these gizmos and gadgets. But it's interesting that there was another delay on man going back to the moon. Did you see that recently? We went before, but there's been some sort of delay. Anyway, it's just interesting that man has all his ideas and he has all his plans and all his devices. And then it's interesting how God many times just steps in and intervenes, right? We see this requirement to consider our life. Why consider the will of God? Well, first of all, because of the brevity and the frailty of life. We already talked about this word vapor and the illustration of our breath in a cold day, the exhaust coming out of our muffler. But this word vapor literally means a puff of smoke. It refers to the transitory aspect of life, the short, temporary aspect of life. Psalm 39, verses 4 and 5, Behold, thou hast made my days as an handbreadth, and mine age is as nothing before thee. Verily, every man at his best state is altogether vanity. What are the requirements? 
It's to, first of all, consider the brevity and the frailty of life. Psalm 90 and verse 12, so teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. In Romans, the phrase is redeeming the time because the days are evil. Are the days not evil? They are very evil. And as Brother Mark Herbster reminded us yesterday, in days that are particularly evil, where should God's people be? Closer to the Lord. Redeeming the time, applying our hearts unto wisdom, recognizing the brevity and the frailty of life, knowing that about all of us, each and every one of us, as human flesh, that should burden us for the lost, to be sharing the gospel, to be reaching others with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it should also remind us about how every day should count for the Lord. That our days are to be with wisdom numbered so that we apply our hearts to wisdom, numbering our days, counting our days, considering that we only have so much time so that we use each and every day for the Lord, that he is preeminent, that his will is our priority. Isaiah 40 and verse 30, even the youths shall faint and be weary and the young men shall utterly fall. He makes the application in Isaiah 40 to the fact that there are even young people who fall, who fail. Speaking of the fact that even young people sometimes have a disease or an accident or some catastrophe. Young people who pass away due to some illness or circumstance, disease or whatever the case may be. Just because someone is young doesn't mean that they will live till they're 80. Just because they're young doesn't mean that they won't die. Doesn't mean that they won't have just a short amount of time left. We just don't know, do we? I remember a man that came and was helping us with computer services at our former ministry. And he was a tri, triathlete. He, he did triathlons. And he, he was a, a very nice man, and he was talking about the next race he had coming up, and I forget all that he was doing. He was biking, he was swimming, he was running. I can't remember all the different aspects of the triathlon. He was in incredible shape. He walked in, and I mean, this guy, was, he was in great shape. It wasn't but maybe a year or two later, I got an email, because we had worked with this company, and I was on their email list, and we had referred to them from time to time, and I got an email, and they said, please pray for the family of so-and-so. He had passed away suddenly, unexpectedly. I couldn't believe it. I mean, the guy was in the prime of life. He was a picture of good health. We just don't know. The brevity of life, the frailty of life. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount it with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. What is the requirement? That we trust the Lord that we wait on the Lord, that we consider the will of God first. Why consider the will of God, the brevity and frailty of life? Secondly, because of the uncertainty and the complexity of life. It's maybe implied and we're inferring from this passage and this aspect of vapor and a little time and vanisheth away. But we understand that life is very uncertain. 
that life can be very complex with all the busyness and all the different things going on. And again, the reminder, as life gets so busy, and I have been convicted of this even in preparing this message, as the ministry gets very busy, and it's been a very busy six weeks, and that's okay, and that's all right. But it's a reminder, as I often was reminded by my professors in seminary and Bible college, that don't get so busy in the ministry that you don't prioritize your personal relationship with the Lord. In America, we pride ourselves on our busyness, on our accomplishments, and all that we can get done, and our checklists, and our to-do lists, and success is measured by numbers, and numbers, and more numbers. And we have to check our hearts, don't we? It's, it's all about the, the net worth and the, the stockholders and all the gains and GDPs and all of that. But maybe sometimes I wonder if the, some of the economic troubles that we have are because God's trying to get our attention about our priorities. Life gets complex. We need the Lord. As life gets busier and more complex and more complicated, it doesn't mean that we shove God out of the way. No, it means we need God more. We need to have God help us in evaluating our priorities in our life and our relationships. and Make sure that we are keeping the will of God first. He asks the question, what is your life? Does your life consist of the abundance of things that you possess? We're warned about covetousness. We were just warned of that rich farmer who had silos and barns and wanted to build more and didn't consider the Lord. The question is asked, what is your life? What is the identity, the identity of our life? Is the identity of our life made up of the things that we do, our experiences, our accomplishments, our material possessions? Have you not heard some of these professional athletes say everything that I ever knew and lived for, everything that I thought was the measure of my success was my ability on the football field or the ball field, the courts, whatever their athletic success was, they talked about, and I've read these interviews, heard these interviews, and they say everything that I ever thought that was meaningful to my life was wrapped up in my accomplishments in athletics. And then now they're so many years later saying how miserable they were or are. They couldn't figure out where their identity in life was and they've been through relationship catastrophes and one in particular doesn't even, well, he knows he's a man and won Olympic medals as a man but tries to be somebody he's not. And he's in an identity crisis and he talks about trying to change his gender and pretending that he's a woman, even though he has had incredible success, even internationally in Olympic medals and all those accomplishments. What is our identity? Does our life consist of the abundance of the things we possess? It seems that James is warning these believers about this. Buying and selling and getting gain and tomorrow and next city and... He's saying, wait a second, your overconfidence, your wrong priorities, you're forgetting the requirements, the will of God. Your boasting is evil. 
He wasn't, he wasn't criticizing or condemning the making of money, but he was warning us about making our life's identity, about all the things that we can do and all the things that we can accomplish and all of our abilities and all of our successes in all the ways that the world measures. When the measure of our success ought to be our faithfulness in the fulfillment of the will of God. We don't have time to go through all the different aspects of the will of God. Maybe another day we'll talk about that. But he ends in verse 17 when he says, Therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not to him, it is sin. What is the good? What is the good that James, by the power of God, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the word of God, what does James say ultimately boil down is the good? It's doing righteous works. It's doing the will of God. It's accomplishing in obedience and in holiness what God has willed, what God has called, what God has commissioned us to do. Wherever it is that God has called us, wherever that God has placed us, we're to live that out in holiness and in righteousness according to God's holy standards in the fulfillment of His will as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable before God, having our minds renewed and being transformed that we might do what is the perfect, the complete, the reasonable, the expected service in the will of God. Trusting in the Lord with all our hearts. Leaning not on our own understanding, but in all our ways, acknowledging Him, knowing Him, and letting Him direct our paths. Committing our way unto the Lord, as Psalm 37 says. Trusting in Him, delighting ourselves in Him. And then, as we commit our ways to Him, as we trust in Him, as we delight in Him, He will give us the desires of His heart of our hearts, excuse me, that are his desires that he has placed within our hearts because we've delighted in him, we've sought his will, we have sought him first. Luke 12 and verse 47 as we close, and that servant, and that servant which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But in the context of that passage, as we come to the end of that parable, he says in Luke 12 and verse 48, But he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. For unto whomever, whomsoever much is given of him shall be much required, and to whom men have committed much of him they will ask the more. What has God given us? It's all of him. What is our life? It is but a vapor that appears for a little time, then vanisheth away. Is our life committed to the Lord in the review of our plans? Are there some revisions? Are we meeting the requirements so that our life counts for the Lord? Our life is lived in the will of God for his glory, for one day for us to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this tremendous passage that reminds us 
to not be going about life trying to make things work on our own and do things our own way, but Lord, to ultimately depend upon you, trust in you, submit to you, draw nigh to you, because our life is but a vapor that appears for a little time and vanishes away. Help us not to be boasting in overconfidence, because that boasting of self-confidence, of self-reliance is only evil. But help us, Lord, instead to do good, to do the will of God, to do what you have called us to do in obedience and faithfulness. And Lord, I pray that you will do your work in our hearts even as we close this service now, we pray in Jesus' name.